Hey everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that puts the writing of Stephen King under the microscope. So, hola muchachos, and welcome to episode 14 and the western shores of Sarasota, Florida's Duma Key. Okay, guys, so I just read this book over the last few days for the second time, and my friends, we must, absolutely must, put our heads together and find a way to make this novel mainstream. It can no longer be underrated and in the shadows. It's too good. It's too amazing. We just have to find a way right now. We gotta get together and just do it because it's fantastic. On this second read, I think it really seeped into my top 10 all-time favorite Stephen King novels. Perhaps in the next few years we might observe if maybe it sneaks into the top 5, but for right now, top 10, 100%, I can easily say. So what's awesome about this novel is that Stephen King has 100% created a tremendous start-to-finish gothic novel. I think the only reason it's not classified as gothic is because of the sunny beach exterior, but that's why it's such an amazing underrated secret because I believe wholeheartedly this novel can sit right next to Daphne du Maurier and Shirley Jackson and the Bronte sisters. He's using the exact same elements that they are in incredible ways, but the only thing is, is his story isn't in a misty English seaside cliff town that's freezing cold. He's just... With this one, he's made his own genre, uh, and it's something that for in my own creation, I've decided to call beach goth. <laughs> beach goth is so good, we need more of it. I cannot wait to dissect it with you because he has created an amazing gothic novel set on the beach. So reading this book for a second time was a total absolute delight. It was not a drudge at all. There was not one part of this novel where I was like, oh yeah, this chunk is boring or oh, this is going to take a minute to get into. It was, I was thrilled to get back to Duma Key. I love being there. I adore the characters. The whole experience is so classic and powerful. It's visual, it's imaginative, it's a full-on sensory experience, and it makes me want to go to Florida so bad. I have never been. Granted, I totally want to do all the touristy Disney World Harry Potter stuff, but after reading this novel, I just want to go to Sarasota. And they mentioned Casey Key, which is a real place in this book. So I want to go there and just see if it's close to what I've been able to visualize in this novel because it's it's awesome. Uh, I, I want to get as close to, to Duma as I can, and I think you might as well. So when I started to look up some info on this novel, um, one of my favorite chunks that I found was a small Today Show interview with Matt Lauer when the book was released. And Matt Lauer asked Stephen King what inspired this story, and he has a really great little tale where he says there's a little place that's like a, a lane that's really overgrown with vegetation and jungle and they use the plant rhododendron a lot in the novel so perhaps rhododendron was present but it was super jungly really dense and 
he had this vision of two dead girls twins holding hands and they kind of just appear out of this jungle-like setting out of the thick vegetation and so when I heard this I was like oh more more de more dead twins just like the shining but then I thought to myself wait were those even twins and this is a tiny little mini tangent it won't take too long but I did some digging and I realized that the dead twins in The Shining was only in the Kubrick version of the film and not the actual novel. So I might be super late to the party and this might be common knowledge and you constant readers may be rolling your eyes right now, so please forgive me, I just discovered this. But the Grady sisters in the novel are the daughters of the caretaker, um, who's the previous Overlook caretaker. Of course he murders them with an axe, very horrifying, but they were not twins in the novel. They are 8 and 10 years old. However, Kubrick, in his genius filmmaking, made them super creepy and dressed them in identical jumper dresses. So they're not actually twins. Because I thought this was going to be a second set of twins, but in actuality, it may only be the first, as far as I know. If there is another set of twin girls, please let me know. I will um, include a retraction. But I I realized, oh, okay, so this might be an actual first set of twin girls. Um, another thing I found out is that uh, I had an error on, I always thought that Miss, Mrs. Massey's room, aka the dead bathtub lady, was 237. It is in the film version, however, in the novel, it's 217. Again, constant readers, I'm so sorry, super late to the party, I accept all of your eye rolling, but somehow it got changed. I don't know why that is, but if you Shining kids can let me know, I would love that. So it's 217 in the novel, but it's 237 in the film, but I've been saying 237 like for everything all the time. So I'm not exactly wrong, but I'm not exactly right either. So I learned a few things uh, while researching Duma Cree. Duma Cree back on track. So now we have a real set of twin girls who are Tessie and Laura Eastlake, age eight. And so uh, Steve lovingly called them his girls or my girls, which I thought was pretty cool. And when he visualized them, they hung around in his mind for about five years as this story started to take shape. So kind of all started with them, which I thought was really cool. So as I kind of mentioned previously, this novel is such a visual experience. There is so much talk of art. If you are an art nerd in any way, you need to read this novel ASAP. But there's so much talk of drawing and painting. So I highly recommend, if you can, please get your hands on the American hardcover version of this text, mostly because the cover art has gorgeous, vivid illustrations of some of the painting content and it really helps when you're sort of visualizing Edgar's work. On the cover, there's the harpoon gun, there's the picnic basket, there's frogs, the tennis balls, there's Edgar's house in the background, which is called Salmon Point, but Edgar calls it Big Pink. And then in the foreground, there's the beach path he takes every day to the East Lake property. So all of these visualizations just make it so rich, and it actually leads 
to you visualizing in a stronger way what the actual paintings look like because we have these gorgeous illustrations. So if you can, uh, please get your hands on the American hardcover to read. Um, in addition to that, on this second time, I read it alongside the audiobook narrated by John Slattery, who's an actor that most recently, well, I guess not most recently, but he's known for Roger Sterling in Mad Men. So if you're a fan of Mad Men, uh, Mr. Slattery does an amazing job. Um, he really makes this reading a performance and after a while I just started to visualize him the actor as Edgar and it totally works he just brings it to life in such an awesome way and I've read that a couple Stephen King fans did have a hard time getting into Duma Key we're gonna talk about that in a little bit later in the episode but I recommend if you're giving Duma Key a second chance please read it alongside John Slattery's narration because you will love it it's gonna come to life so much more and it's going to be way more engaging if you did have trouble the first time around. So a quick summary to get us going here. Um, this book was released in 2008. It's a little over 600 pages. And so what I wrote here is that Edgar Fremantle is a successful Minnesota guy. He's got a really successful construction business. He's been married 25 years. He has two grown daughters. Life is good. And then a freak accident leaves him an amputee, almost dead. His life basically implodes. And after a sudden divorce, he heads to Sarasota, Florida to heal, to start again. And he takes up a long forgotten adolescent hobby of drawing. So while on McKee, his physical healing and his artistic transformation flourish, and all of these are tied to the mystery of the key and its mysterious owners, Elizabeth Eastlake, and the tragedy of her family. So uh, with that, uh, we're going to get ready to dive in here. But before I begin, per usual, uh, what's coming up in this episode is a spoiler-free investigation of the text. I'm not going to reveal any endings and too many major plot threads, but I'm going to highlight a few big things. So I'll do my very best to keep it as ambiguous as I can and not reveal any big spoilerific moments in the novel. But we're going to be looking at what's unique. Unique, uh, heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, what's working and what's not, and then my concluding thoughts and recommendations on this absolutely A-plus standout novel. So um, if you haven't read Duma Key yet and you want to be 100% spoiler-free, go ahead and save this episode until you're all finished. But if you're curious and you want to get back to the beach, grab your sunblock and your swimsuit and let's get in it. Okay, muchachos, let's go ahead and explore what's making Duma Key unique. So I have four total categories I'm going to explore with you guys today. One of the categories has five subcategories, which I know sounds a little extensive, but 
on this second reading i really went down the rabbit hole you guys i super nerded out and i had pages and pages of notes and observations and little scribblings so i whittled everything down and this is the concentrated version of my thoughts and my what i feel is strongly representing the gothic and other fun elements that make duma key pretty original so the first element we're going to start off with is elements of beach gothic. <laughs> so the very first little bullet point I have under beach gothic is setting. So setting is working so well in this novel, guys. It really is transporting us to gothic with a capital G very quickly in the text. So when Edgar leaves Minnesota and arrives to Dumaki, it's a mostly abandoned little island and stretch of land. There's a couple vacation homes present, but there's nobody there, and so it's very isolated and the privateness really creates that mystery right away. We have three houses in Duma Key that the reader spends some time in. The first house is Sam, um, Edgar's residence, and it's called Salmon Point, or what uh, Edgar refers to it as Big Pink, because it's a literal big pink house. Um, this place is so cool. On the American hardcover version of the novel, you see a picture of uh, Big Pink in the background. And what's interesting is the home itself is on wooden uh, stilts uh, to keep it off of the, um, the beach. But what's really prominent in Edgar's time at Big Pink is the tide comes in and smashes the shells on the rocks under the house. And so Edgar repeatedly writes about the shells or the sounds of the shells and so sometimes it's a very soothing lulling sound and other times it's quite menacing and really sinister and very very spooky so we've get we have some gothic elements really quick uh, in uh, Big Pink. The other really fun area of Big Pink is called Little Pink, which is the room that Edgar frequently paints and draws in. There's a wall in Little Pink that's all glass, and this glass wall faces the water and the sky, so it sounds just like a vacation paradise, but Edgar does see some pretty beautiful things and some pretty creepy things with that uh, glass wall. So that's some really cool spooky elements inside of the house. The second two homes that we have are both named Heron's Roost. So I'm going to call them Heron's Roost 1 and Heron's Roost 2. So HR1 is the home that Elizabeth Eastlake lives in with her caretaker, Wireman, which we're going to talk more about in the next section. But uh, she that is the house. It's about maybe less than a mile from Big Pink. So Edgar in his healing process takes long beach walks and he walks to Heron's Roost every almost every day um, as the novel progresses. In the latter half of the novel is where we really dive into the spooky and the gothic and we have Heron's Roost 2 which we find out is a completely condemned abandoned covered in jungle and spookiness 
rotted, abandoned completely um, south of, of Heron's Roost 1. So much of Duma Key is actually abandoned on the southern section. It's overgrown with jungle and palms and there's even uh, you, you can't even really drive on it. And so in the latter half of the novel, we really get submerged into the, the creepy, dark, gothic elements of setting with this mysterious jungle that has all kinds of creepy creatures in it and some really sinister stuff unfolds. So setting is working so, so well. And I, as I said previously, I think it could work right alongside some of the other famous Gothic homes we have, such as in Wuthering Heights or in Rebecca, um, the Bronte sisters, you know, I mean, this novel could sit right next to them a hundred percent. So this second element um, that I want to explore is, of course, art. So we have such a strong investigation and exploration of art and drawing and painting in this story, guys. And so when Edgar first gets to Duma Key, he only draws. Um, and so what happens is, without revealing too, too much, is as Edgar is starting to put a pencil to paper or a colored pencil to canvas, he starts to experience a psychic phenomena where he will see visions of of things he doesn't really understand he's drawing them and what we see as readers is some of these things come to pass or come to the surface as being real and so he realizes that he is seeing real things before they happen so according to my notes we have in this entire novel approximately 45 pieces of art that Edgar composes during his time at D. McKee. Uh, 15 of them are drawings, which is what we have in the first half of the story, and then in the latter it's all paintings. He even has one series of painting called Girl and Ship, which he has eight iterations of, which is very, very uh, key to the story as it unfolds. It's a really creepy set of paintings. But uh, all of them, as Edgar is painting and creating this art, um, what Elizabeth Eastlake tells him is that you need to get these paintings off the island because it's a bit like too much electricity building up in a battery. Um, so the paintings not only give Edgar this psychic phenomenon, but they have so much energy and power in somewhat negative ways, somewhat positive ways, but for the most part, um, negative. What's also really cool is if you observe from the American hardcover, the style of the art is reminiscent of Salvador Dali. So if you like surrealist artists or painters, this is, it's, it's really cool. It's very reminiscent. Um, also Andrew Wyeth, Edward Hopper. So there's a couple names that are thrown around. So if you are somebody who appreciates painting and art, you'll enjoy this quite a bit. They have a lot of comparisons. And coincidentally, Salvador Dali actually stayed in Big Pink in the story and he gave Elizabeth Eastlake a little sketch that he drew at Big Pink. So all kinds of real life connections to actual painters and art, which is cool. But 
when uh, Edgar shows his work at the Skodo Gallery, uh, the, the docents there claim that it represents truth and shows lucidity. So all kinds of really cool, mysterious stuff going on with the art. The art is crucial to this story and just the gothic unfolding. I know I've mentioned in other episodes how when we have those paintings coming to life and just art attached to mystery, that's what we have here in spades and it's so cool and we have so much of it too it's just endless amount of creation and visuals and color and it's awesome so the other element that is working extremely well here in in this story and it's a very unique component is family history so when I read this story for the second time I realized with great pleasure just how much mystery there is in this story um, the family history of the East Lakes is very very strong they are in our spotlight the East Lake family they are the owners of Dumaki John Eastlake and his six daughters. Um, there's a lot of tragedy surrounding them. A lot of it is taking place. All of the flashbacks we have are from the 1920s. Elizabeth is a very little girl. She is the only remaining Eastlake sibling left. Um, and so, as I mentioned, those twins from earlier are Elizabeth Eastlake's sisters, Tessie and Laura, age eight. They're the twins that die in 1927. So there's just all kinds of wonderful family history and mystery surrounding the East Lakes. They were bootlegging at one point. They have a very uh, suspicious and superstitious nanny who takes care of um, little Elizabeth. There's just all kinds of amazing stuff going on. There's treasure hunts, but mostly the reader really gets to uncover the mystery of this family, and I think that's what also makes it very unique. It's a story about art and power and sort of sinister consequences, etc., but it's also a big mystery, which is working really well. So this next one is for all of you horror fans out there, my goodness. Um, we've got dolls, guys, and lots of them. Uh, dolls, as in little, little girl dolls, um, several of them. We actually have two that take a big spotlight. The first one we meet really soon in this story, actually, very early on. That's Reba, so if you can imagine a little Raggedy Ann doll with bright red hair, um, Reba, the anger management doll, is given to Edgar by Dr. Kamen when he is first in uh, physical therapy and psychologically dealing with the effects of his injuries. Edgar has a really difficult time. He's very, very angry, and so he's got to channel some of that into Reba. She makes an appearance in a lot of Edgar's art and in a lot of Edgar's day today. The second doll we have later on in the story is Noveen. She's a black doll with these bright red lips, and she is Elizabeth Eastlake's childhood doll from the 1920s, so she kind of makes an appearance. We also have these little china dolls, lots of them, that Elizabeth Eastlake, as an old woman, plays with pretty much daily. She arranges them in her house, and not necessarily a doll house, but she's just consistently playing with these china dolls. 
dolls. And uh, there's another doll that is pretty close to our main villain. I'm not going to talk too much on that one, but we got dolls, folks. So if you are creeped out by dolls in movies, they're working very well here. Super duper gothic and uh, creepy, but as, as a total Freddy cat, I was okay. So it's not, not super bad. So the last little subcategory I have to round out elements of the gothic is the color red. Oh my goodness, guys. We need to put red in all caps because this novel is just a study of red and how red is operating as this ominous catalyst event. This catalyst color where change and, oh man, just development and and sinister and fate are all sort of coming to the surface. So the text example I'm going to read here pretty soon will kind of uh, indicate what we read a lot about in this story, but basically the quote, it was red, is so frequent. We read it um, almost every single page. It's just present. It really reminds me, if you guys remember from the late 90s, um, M. Night Shyamalan's first movie, the sixth sense it's mostly remembered for its really iconic twist ending and it's super spooky tale but if you go back and rewatch it it is an amazing film that showcases the color red and how red is working to indicate the presence of ghost or the afterlife or the mystery of the narrative and it's such an amazing study of red this novel is very similar in how it's working and from my imagination it's a bright bright red just like a fire engine red just deep and maybe a little orange and red in there if you want to really nerd out with the color aspect i wouldn't necessarily call it a blood red but a very bright red and so it's just such a theme such a symbol and it's almost on every single page so i loved it it's awesome to see and creates this amazing gothic environment. So the next element I'm going to discuss with you guys is what it's a combination of two, but I really think that they do work together a lot. So this this category is called the dark feminine and the hand of fate. So in this story where I first got the indication of dark feminine is we get a phone call from Elizabeth Eastlake to Edgar pretty early on in the novel and Elizabeth Eastlake tells him that if he has daughters, he should not bring them to Duma Key because Duma Key is, quote, bad luck for daughters. So it really sets this very ominous tone, but what we have in this story, we have Edgar's two grown daughters, Ilsa and Melinda, and then we have uh, Elizabeth Eastlake's five sisters, which is Adriana, Maria, Hannah, and then Tessie and Laura, her, um, uh, her sisters, her twin sisters, sorry. I think there might be one more I'm forgetting, but they, uh, there's a lot of tragedy surrounding the female, but there's also a lot of light. So the, the feminine chunk that 
is not the dark part is actually full of light and joy and love and they bring a lot of just especially Wireman's wife and daughter so there's a lot of representation of females just being such a source of joy and hope and love and then the antithesis of that is this dark feminine which is really cool mostly because without revealing too much the villain in this story is female um and so not to genderize it too much but i think it really does matter to the overall reception of the story is we have this element of light female joy beauty grace and then this destroyer of it which is the dark feminine and we have several female aspects that channel that dark feminine so that's a huge unique thing that i've noticed in this text and then in addition to that, um, I would say the dark feminines on the left and then on the right is the hand of fate. So upon this second reading, it was very prevalent to me guys just how strong fate and the idea of fate is operating in this text because what I noticed so strongly is the puppet strings are pulled from moment one. Moment one they are being pulled guys and the chess pieces are being positioned and fate is just a crucial identifier that's present here. There's a lot of inexplainable um, scenarios where it's just sort of fate slash doom working in hand. It reminded me if you guys are familiar with um, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, the young character Pip when he's in the city he achieves you know tremendous success and wealth and riches and um, fame and you find out that the person behind all of that is someone that he knew quite well it was the the convict guy who had been in the background in the shadows the whole time and i got that vibe in this story without revealing too much let's just say there's somebody behind the curtain from moment one and that idea is super prevalent throughout and uh, really makes it a strong read when you have that in perspective so my third one that we're going to talk about is one that I'd like to call Hypothetical Death. So we've got two characters, Edgar and Wireman, who we're going to talk about in greater detail in our Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mention section. But these two guys both encounter injuries that should have killed them. 100% they should be dead, but they're not physically dead. However, their their previous lives or the lives they had before the events that that wounded them are in fact gone forever. So this hypothetical death, they have these metaphorical sides of themselves that are gone forever. They're completely dead. And so their external lives are really reset to factory settings. Like Edgar had a successful construction business. He's married. He's a father. And all of that really kind of dies a little bit to where he goes back to the very beginning. Uh, what we do find out is all of that is for fate's purpose, of course. But um, the hypothetical death is very unique where so many characters, in addition to Edgar Wireman and Elizabeth, encounter these injuries where they don't die physically, but they kind of die in every other area and have to start completely over. So that element is, is really working well and is pretty unique here. 
And then my last one, my last sort of unique uh, presence here is something I'm calling the slow burn pacing. So most of the reviews I read of Duma Key, many uh, took some time away from this book because in the first 300 pages they really couldn't really get into it. And so I, one reviewer called it as the slow tide moving in, that this experience is very much like the water coming in. You don't really realize how how deep you are or how quickly it's come until you're almost drowning. And I can agree with that. I think for me, this novel, when I started reading it, it's a bit like lighting a fuse from moment one, but it's a long fuse. But then once we start going, I want to say right around that page 300, rather than one big giant dynamite blast, I think we have several dynamite blasts. I think we have a consistent number of explosions starting from around page 300 all the way till the end. And it's just nothing but little bomb pops going off uh, consistently. I, I also um, view this story, the pacing of it, much like the th first 300 pages are like the most delicious cocktail hour you've ever been to. It's delectable little morsels, the hors d'oeuvres are great, the drinks are great, the conversation's great, the people watching is stellar, and then right around 300 you're gonna sit down to a really delicious multi-course meal. So if if that sort of helps a little bit, those visualizations to the pacing, um, I recommend giving it another try because I think a lot of horror fans, 300 pages might be a little bit long to wait for anything super sinister to happen or get those thrills happening but if you really dive into it a second time definitely know that the fuse has been lit it really has and you are following that fuse throughout but um, it's gonna take till about page 300 to start hearing those little explosions and then by 400 oh my god like the hand of doom is is there <laughs> and the bombs are going off guys so uh the slow burn pacing i felt was really unique and i really enjoyed it and i think those 300 pages are essential to set up our setting and the overall gothic vibe the routine edgar's healing process which we're going to talk about in the later sections but so to kind of indicate this little bit of slow burn, I have two examples um, that I'm going to share with you from the text. The first one is very early on in the story, and it is the bottom of page 33 in the American hardcover text, and then the first paragraph of 34. When I look back on that time, it's with the strangest stew of emotions. Love, longing, terror, horror, regret and the deep sweetness only those who've been near death can know. I think it's how Adam and Eve must have felt. Surely they looked back at Eden, don't you think, as they started barefoot down the path to where we are now, in our glum political world of bullets and bombs and satellite TV? Looked past the angel guarding the shut gate with its fiery sword? Sure, I think they must have wanted one more look at the green world they had lost, with its sweet water and kind-hearted animals, and its snake, of course. The second example I have for you is really indicating that color red and that hand of fate that I mentioned earlier. So this is on the top of page 347. 
the picnic basket, that damned red picnic basket full of her drawings, how that haunts me. Even now, four years later, I find myself playing the what-if game, wondering how much would have changed if I'd pushed everything else aside and gone hunting for it. It was found by Jack Cantori, but by then it was too late. And maybe, I can't say for sure, it wouldn't have changed anything, because some force was at work, both on Duma Key and inside Edgar Fremantle. Can I say that force brought me there? No. Can I say it didn't? No, I can't say that either. But by the time March became April, it had begun to gain strength and ever so stealthily extend its reach. That basket. Elizabeth's damn picnic basket. It was red. Okay, so those are my favorite examples for the, from the text that kind of indicate um, some of the fun stuff going on that I mentioned. So now uh, we are going to transition to what's working and what's not. So hang on with me and let's head deeper into the jungle. So to recap from our previous section where we examined what's unique about Duma Key, we looked at elements of beach gothic. We had setting, art, family history, dolls, the color red. We also had the dark feminine and the hand of fate in addition to hypothetical death and slow burn pacing. So we're going to transition now actually to heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. I know I said previously that we were going to look at what's working at what and what's not, but I'm at a little bit of a crossroads slash difficult decision. I've gotten the habit of putting the character section toward the end for our short story collections, but in the novels I put it in the middle, so I kind of got stuck today deciding which one, what order I wanted them to go in. I just can't decide, like there's pros and cons for each one, um, but maybe you can let me know what you prefer. So um, you'll have to write in at underrated underrated sk at gmail and you can let me know if you prefer characters analysis in the middle or a little bit toward the end but today i just decided to switch it up and uh switch our train track route <laughs> mid-trip so do forgive me if it throws a wrench in your smoke spokes but it'll be okay so uh after examining what was kind of unique in the text, I did want to mention a couple characters in this book that just stand out and are truly larger than life and unforgettable. There are lots of great characters in this book, even the ones that aren't as um, complex as some of the our main stars. They add so much to the story and so much to Edgar Fremantle's life. So the first person I want to mention, because I think he's just absolutely crucial to this story, is someone who many Stephen King fans and readers of this novel have decided he might be the 
one of Stephen King's best characters. He is that special. And I'm talking about my hero, Jerome Wireman. And so Jerome Meyer Wireman is a middle-aged former lawyer. We meet him a few weeks after Edgar's stay on Duma Key. Edgar starts to make his long beach walk, sort of strengthening his leg and his hip and um, his body in general, recovering from the accident and he meets Wireman sort of sitting in a picnic chair or in a beach chair with a jug of ice green tea and they get to talking and become friends. So Jerome Wireman used to be a lawyer in Nebraska, I believe, suffered a lot of personal tragedy, a lot of personal loss, and suddenly ended up uh, taking care of 85-year-old Elizabeth Eastlake, who we'll talk about in just a second, but he is so charming and so special and real and funny and sweet and positive that he he's so important that we actually hear his name mentioned on the first page of this novel. It's like sentence three of the entire book and Edgar says, my friend Wireman, or my pal Wireman says, so he is just so special and so intrinsically woven into the fabric of this story. And he really is unforgettable that many Stephen King fans have wanted Wireman either in a sequel or, um, in, or a prequel rather, uh, and just wanting more of him, more screen time with uh, him and Edgar. I think the other reason that makes this so special, or Wireman so special, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in our next section, but um, their friendship is, is quite incredible. But Wireman is so funny, and one of my favorite things about him is he calls everybody muchacho or vato, so he's constantly um, incorporating random Spanish, not necessarily Spanglish, but just inserting little Spanish phrases throughout. They're not very difficult to understand, especially when he's frightened. The Spanish uh, really flies out or angry. He's just so brave and he has such a sunny disposition despite undergoing some tremendous loss. And as the novel progressed and as I read through it this second time, I really loved Wireman even more in the second half of the novel because I realized that Wireman, not only is he just a great guy in general, he just does all the right things and he's so enjoyable on the page, but he believes Edgar. Like he's never, he was never somebody to, he'll give a little bit benefit of the doubt but he believes Edgar and he is a good friend and he shows up and he's there in the dark places and he's such a source of support and he's a great teammate and he's a great person in this book that um he rolls with the punches but does so in such a positive way he takes really good care of elizabeth eastlake he really loves her and genuinely cares for her and genuinely cares for edgar and we see that when he just keeps showing up um wireman is somebody who shows up and he is so special and i for those of you uh readers who know how 
amazing Stephen King can write characters and you know what a character genius he is and you have not read Duma Key, oh my goodness guys, um, for Wireman alone, I would recommend this novel for the character of Wireman alone. He is so incredible and I think many readers uh, will say how he definitely made the book. He is such a scene stealer and so enjoyable and I, I just want to uh, have him call uh, everybody muchacho <laughs> all the time. So he's my hero, uh, Jerome Wireman, such an amazing character, positive, funny, sweet, good guy, um, but also makes his mark in a very subtle, unforgettable way. So um, that's my honor. My, that's my uh, hero that I wanted to mention first. My honorable mention that I'd like to uh, discuss right after is, of course, Elizabeth Eastlake. She is delightful. And when we meet her, when the reader first sort of gets its eyes on her, uh, Edgar is driving by with his daughter Ilsa, and he sees this old woman in a wheelchair with a big floppy hat and bright blue uh, Converse high tops on. So she's pretty groovy right away. Uh, so when we meet Elizabeth Eastlake, she's 85. She is suffering from Alzheimer's, bless her heart. Uh, she's the youngest daughter of John Eastlake and the Eastlake fortune. And we find out um, later on the math comes to the surface. She's probably worth approximately $160 million uh, due to her ownership of Duma Key and just all of the family lineage and connections. And she's the last direct descendant from John Eastlake. They mentioned she has a couple uh, nieces and nephews, of course, extended family members, but she's the, she's the last sort of keeper of the keys with everything. She's incredibly mysterious, but she's got that genius, wonderful old lady wit and sass that I love. Stephen King just gives her a couple zingers there. She's delightful on the page. But she is also incredibly mysterious. She's very southern, she's feisty, she's cultured, she loves poetry, and that's one of the best parts between her and Edgar's relationship is she asks that Edgar read her poetry uh, when he comes over. So when we read this novel, Elizabeth Eastlake is incredibly what's the word? She is incredibly directly tied to everything, basically. Um, and she is a complete parallel to the character of Edgar. She and him are almost the same character, given the fact that they both suffered really intense injuries. Uh, they both sought drawing as a way to reconnect with their memory, to draw their reality, to remember, to heal, to um, gain control of, you know, speaking and language. And for Elizabeth, she suffered a traumatic head injury when she was four years old, I believe, maybe two. Two years old might have been it. So she the quote in the book that I love so much is she drew herself back to life or she drew herself back into the world. So the character of Elizabeth Eastlake, we see th through flashbacks her childhood, her injury, her immense artistic genius, 
but most of that is kept secret for a very long time and you will find out why of course in the progression of the story but her life and Edgar's life are just paralleling each other. They're almost mirror images of each other for sure. So she is so cool and I love that we get her at 85 where she's feisty and sassy and also very vulnerable. We do see her when she does lose her memory and she struggles and she's sad and frustrated and um, it's a difficult situation especially if you do have family members close to you that are suffering from any sort of memory debilitation or lack or things like that. But so Elizabeth Eastlake is a delight and she is my honorable mention and absolutely essential to this tale. Uh, the history of her family is just so dang cool, but more on that in a little bit. So for my villain, without revealing too, too much, um, one thing that I will highlight is this novel is coming directly after Lisey's story published in 2006. This is in 2008 and if you guys remember from Lisey's story, if you haven't heard my episode 6 or if you freshly read Lisey's story, there is a monster inside of that novel called the Long Boy and it's a kind of creature that lives in Booyah Moon and uh, is responsible for a lot of bad things surrounding the character of Scott Landon. What we have here in Duma Key is another monster. Um, there's slightly more aquatic features, that's all I'm going to say, I don't want to reveal too too much, but this creature is called the Big Boy. So this is my villain that I want to discuss with you guys called the Big Boy because speaking about parallels, I really think that Steve King might have just been channeling what the long boy was in Booyah Moon. And so we have this creature here in the novel following Lisey's story called Big Boy. And it's called Big Boy mostly because it's seen through the eyes of the children and they don't really have the language to articulate what it is. Um, they're just so afraid and it, it is pretty creepy when you uh, sort of read its description. But it is a creature and uh, they call it the big boy and the persistent quote we see surrounding it is it has teeth. So I wonder and I, I really was so glad that um, you that one is able to observe these kind of parallel moments with creature creations or character creations um, with the novels that are kind of back to back. So I would love to know what you guys think about maybe Long Boy versus Big Boy. Um, their features are definitely different, but I wonder why he chose to kind of name them in such a way that was similar to each other. So um, the Big Boy is definitely very frightening, especially in the context when we finally see him and uh, the only ones who really encounter him are the children. So the big boy is a cool villain and it just got me thinking about Lisey's story again and I love it when there are moments in Stephen King novels where they just kind of connect almost like grasping hands across time and space and they're they're all kind of interconnected which many Dark Tower fans will probably know much better than I will. Um, but yeah, so the big boy and Lisey's story is the long boy 
way and the fact that these novels are within two years of each other um, and actually in the author's notes it looks like he may have been working on this story um, really quickly after Lisi's story was done so um, those are my thoughts on that one I did want to mention Edgar Fremantle just a little bit, but I'm going to discuss more of him in our next section, which will be what's working and what's not. So uh, let's head on over into that side of the beach. Okay, muchachos y muchachas, let's enter into our last segment of this episode, what's working and what's not. So we've got so many good things that I want to talk about. As I mentioned earlier, I had so many pages of notes, um, but I narrowed it down. So we've got a couple good ones, the most concentrated, flavorful, uh, areas of exploration. I, I do have mostly what's working because I'm a huge fangirl of this novel, but I do have one or two things that aren't necessarily not working, but that I just want more of. So that is sometimes a trend for me with a really good Stephen King novel that I have very little problems with. I kind of just want more. So we'll talk about the areas that I was hungry for a little bit more. But to start us off, one of my favorite, favorite things that I feel is working so, so well in Duma Key is first person narration. It's awesome and it just carries you away from moment one. And so Edgar Fremantle is our voice and when he first speaks to us, it is from four years ago from the actual timing of the events. So it is tinged with melancholy and a little bit of sadness and curiosity, but I adore it and it's totally engrossing from moment one. The first person narration really just uh, sweeps the reader away. It definitely did with me, that's for sure. Um, just the reflection and the immediate scooping up of your interest is really strong. So the first person narration is so great. And Edgar carries the story the whole time. I think that there was most likely, I think with any sort of writer, there's always temptation to give perspective to a different character, but Edgar carries us the whole way. This is his story and it works so well. Um, the second uh, area that's working tremendously well, I kind of combined it for just to kind of sandwich them together, but the topic is fathers and daughters and male friendship. So I used this word a lot in our previous segment, genuine, and I think that is the key idea here that's making these work so, so much, and it's the genuine relationships of Edgar and his two daughters, Ilsa and Melinda, 
which it's mostly Ilsa and Edgar. Uh, Edgar's pretty blunt about telling the reader that Ilsa is his favorite. And what's interesting about that is he's really forthcoming with why he doesn't even understand why that is. It just is. He calls Melinda his, um, who I believe is his first daughter actually, he calls her his hard girl and she is a little bit prickly when we meet her. She's delightful and uh, a lovely person, but she's not as warm and sweet as Ilsa. And so, um, like I mentioned with that dark feminine, light feminine, Ilsa is all representations of beauty and grace and sweetness. And so Ilsa is um, Edgar's favorite daughter and their interactions together, both daughters actually, is super genuine. So if you have a healthy uh, male relationship in your life that you would consider a paternal relationship, this is done really well and it will just warm your heart because it's genuine and very real. So I enjoyed that. And then in addition to the father-daughter exploration, the male friendship, as I kind of hinted at a little bit when I was talking about Wireman, Wireman and Edgar are just peanut butter and jelly. They are the most delightful pairing and they work so well. They're fun and funny and they have this sort of effortless game where they'll say a random quote from a music band and then the other person will include not only the band or who wrote the song but the year it came out. So they have, inc they have tons in common but what I also like in this novel is it shows a genuine bond between men in the fact that they don't always get along and so when they clash and kind of have moments of sparring with each other, um, Edgar and Wireman do it in a way that's still loving and kind and not overly aggressive or rude or anything like that and so it's genuine and I like that we get to explore all facets of this male relationship. It just is so real. We have them in good times, we have them in bad, we have them when they're both terrified and stressed and backed up against the wall and in the corner and it, it's delightful and it's so real and I think it's a genuine exploration of a true male friendship and that's tremendous and extraordinary. So my third area that I'd like to look at is what I'm calling the healing process. And so what I appreciate so much is that uh, Edgar's accident almost kills him and the injury that he suffers on the body is really dealt with in a very sincere and slow and focused way to kind of show the reader how real and devastating injury can be and how long it takes to heal. And so what we see Edgar go through is mood swings and memory loss and speech lapse and intense anger and rage because of those losses and grief over his former life. And there are wonderful moments in the first 300 pages of the book where Edgar's trying to taper off of his pain medication and some days he'll get down the stairs and he'll 
maybe get down to the beach and walk like 38 steps and that's all he could do that day and he'll come back and have to take a huge nap and just sort of be dead um, and then the fact that he lost his right arm and thankfully in the story he is left-handed so he got really lucky there but you know the loss of limb and the phantom limb they explore that really well but Edgar's hip is shattered his leg is in constant pain his ribs were broken and he tells the reader that those take forever to heal and he actually still suffers a lot of pain even almost a year later when he's being hugged at the gallery but I love is how um, real the all-consuming devastating impact of injury and the healing process and the slow progress but those moments of progress progress mean everything to Edgar so um, he comes such a long way and I think that's also why the first person narration succeeds so well is we're just with Edgar on this journey where he's in so much pain and he just has to nap for three hours after only you know walking 15 steps down the down to the living room and then back up again and if he's He's just so fragile in those initial 300 pages, but then after that we really see him healing and gaining strength. On the more ominous side of that, what's sort of interesting as you're reading through is we've kind of talked about the mystical elements at work when it comes to the art and the sort of psychic phenomena that's happening when Edgar is making the paintings and drawing and... but. I had to wonder on this second reading of whether or not the villain in the shadows is somewhat responsible for this healing. I'm not sure. I think it could be a little bit 50-50. I'd love to hear what you guys think, but um, young Elizabeth goes through the same thing where she draws herself back to life in terms of relating with the world again because she can't speak and Edgar's in a very similar spot with not being able to really speak and articulate and then also having a blank canvas of life. He's left Minnesota, has di he's divorced his wife or she's divorced him rather. His daughter Melinda lives in France, his daughter Ilsa lives in Rhode Island. He's completely alone and he's just there by himself with his thoughts and this newly developing ability to draw and paint some really incredible things. But the healing process is genuine and slow and steady with little tiny moments and breadcrumbs of progress but it works and it's, I think King is really writing from personal experience after suffering from his accident in 1999 and the years it took to get on track again. And uh, I really feel that he brings the reader very close with the personal experience of healing. So I loved that so much and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it as well. So my fourth area that I'd like to explore with you guys is structure. So the structure is, as I mentioned, we do have the first person narration, but we have these wonderful intervals called how to draw a picture. And we have about a dozen of them peppered throughout the, narr the narrative. And they are flashbacks and glimpses to young Elizabeth Eastlake. And she's, she's really little, she's maybe four or five in most of these um, flashbacks. They're very childlike in their narration for the most part and a lot of times it's kind of this hazy 
dreamlike narration because she's a little girl trying to understand the world around her. Um, but the flashbacks really reveal a lot about the East Lake family, who's there, who's around her. So the mystery elements of the story are, are especially cool to see through that lens, but you also get to observe how she and Edgar are really mirrors images of each other because the exact same things that she is going through and what the drawing is doing to her and doing for her is the exact same things that's happening to Edgar um, about 60, no, more than that, 80 years later. Um, they're going through the same thing uh, in different timelines. So really, really cool. I love those how to draw a picture intervals. They reveal so much. And in the latter half of the novel, the second 300 pages, they are rich. They are rich and reveal a ton and they really pick up speed and there's some excellent details and character moments and descriptions in them and they really really catch fire. Um, so my last one, my fifth one, is one that I did another sort of combination um, but for the most part I've mentioned how wonderful mis mi the mystery element is in this novel but what is even more so is what I'm just talking about, um, what I'm just highlighting in terms of sensory. So the word sensory in all caps, guys. This is just so damn good, guys. Um, like Joyland, the total immersion of the setting and the everything, the immersive experience of this novel is palpable with the colors and the ocean and this sand and the temperature, the sense, how visual everything is, the sort of jungle, overgrown forest, the water, the art, the, the, the way that these paintings and drawings come together. All five senses are used at all times. It's so immersive and so this is such an extraordinary sensory experience. So if you're anyone who is lucky enough to maybe have synesthesia where you hear music and you see colors or you taste things or feel textures with light or colors or sounds, um, this is such an immersive sensory experience. Um, in addition to that sensory experience, we have a really kick-ass mystery. We have a really cool mystery that keeps you guessing for a really long time and I didn't see it coming at all. There's just some really great mystery moments and some detective uh, little zones where you get to really sort of think and wonder and um, when the story reveals itself, it's pretty special. So the sensory is working so, so well. So uh, to begin our what's not working, as I mentioned previously, I really only have like one or two things because truly, listeners, in my heart, it's hard for me to find um, things that I aren't working when I love the book so much. So I do my best when I'm fangirling so much to be objective and so I was really really nitpicky and there are two areas that I'm okay that the way that they happened happened I'm fine with that but I'm just hungry for a little bit more um, the one nitpicky area is 
There's a couple scenes where Edgar is interacting with his ex-wife Pam over the phone while he's in Duma Key, and by interacting, I mean arguing. And the first sort of moment we see that is Edgar paints a picture called, or that's actually a drawing, I think, pretty sure, or it might be his first painting, not sure. I threw away some of my notes when they got to like 10 pages, so, um, but the the artwork piece is called friends with benefits and he basically realizes psychically through his drawing that his wife has been um ha has had some new partners come into her life one of the partners he knows and so it's a little bit of like a jealousy moment but um i looking at it just being really nitpicky for me i wish that could have been chopped i think that with it it does make an impact later on down the story, so I understand why it's in there. But I wonder if we might have just chopped some of the arguing scenes, because that's really all that's happening, is Pam is bitter and angry and they're yelling at each other over the phone. And I don't know. I don't know if it's serving as strong. I'm totally fine with it. I just wonder, um, you know, I, I wonder if that could have been dealt with with a lighter hand. Um, and maybe we wouldn't have had to have the full-on arguing scenes. We could have just had um, a quick, uh, like, telling paragraph saying they argued rather than the full-on scene. Because um, I don't know how much that added. So, this is me being really nitpicky because it's hard for me to find things in this um, wonderful novel. Um, the second area that I genuinely just wanted more of is in regards to Miss Eastlake and John uh, John Eastlake. So by Miss Eastlake, I mean Elizabeth Eastlake. Um, so we meet her at the age of 85 and we meet her at the age of two through four through the flashbacks throughout the novel. We hear some sort of summary of what happened to her other sisters, etc., but we never find out if she had a husband or children. Um, that is left a total mystery because at the age of 85, it's just said that she's the sole heir to the East Lake fortune and there's nobody else and so there's no talk of a child or husband so i felt that was kind of untouched a little bit and i really wanted to know more about miss eastlake um also john eastlake we last hear of him in the story in 1927 maybe 28 i think it's 27 and then all we hear of is that Elizabeth and her father John come back to Duma Key in 1951 and they come to Heron's Roost 1. Um, whereas Heron's Roost 2 was the uh, second creepy house that was super condemned that we hear about in the second half of the novel. So they actually um, build a new Heron's Roost and they never ever go back to the old house. So I don't know what happened to John Eastlake. I don't know how long he lived, if he remarried. So I feel for such a rich family history that um, Stephen King gave us regarding the side story 
story of the Eastlake family, there were some big question marks um, where I was just hungry for more. Like I was so immersed in this family's history and drama and what went down on Duma Key that at the end I was itching for a little bit more uh, specifically concerning, did Elizabeth ever marry? Did she ever have a child? Did she, was there ever any talk of her not? wanting to do that because what we learn from other people around Duma Key is that Elizabeth Eastlake was such a patron of the arts. She just poured money into artists and exhibits and museums and local talent and anything to do with painting and supporting the arts. She was a huge patron. She loved being active and playing tennis and just living a very um, luxurious yet active life. But there's no talk of husband or children and so I was very curious as to why that is. Um, I may have missed something. I might have missed something um, as we do when we're kind of just uh, reading, reading, reading. It feverish way and trying to just get from one chunk of the novel to the next. So maybe I missed something. If I did, please let me know. Um, I would love to hear from you guys if I did miss something. Um, but yeah, especially Johnny's like, like I need more. I need to know what went down and you guys will feel the same uh, once you find out. That's all I'll say. So um, so those are my areas. So to recap, what's really working for me in this novel is I have first-person narration, we've got fathers and daughters, and the male friendship between Wireman and Edgar. We have the healing process, we have the structure of the story with the how to draw a picture intervals, we have the sensory experience of it all, and then what's not working for me is too many arguing conversations with Pam, um, Edgar's ex-wife, and himself, and then more details on Elizabeth Eastlake and her father, John Eastlake. And uh, that's my, those are my, uh, my what's working and what's not. So to kind of um, exit on out of here and uh, get us back to dry land, I uh, cannot praise this novel enough, guys, and I want you all to read it right now, maybe even more than Joyland, and I love Joyland. I freaking love Joyland, guys, and if you haven't heard my Joyland episode, please do so. It's one where I'm just swooning all over the place, but this novel is suspenseful and tragic and mysterious. It's so full of color and creation, and there is an evil feminine doom, a female doom that I have not yet seen in a Stephen King novel like this before to where we could just analyze it all day, all night, and I would be happy to do so with all of you. But one thing that I loved in the interview with Matt Lauer is Stephen King gave this great quote where he says, Creativity is a road out of pain and misery and unhappiness. And I think that he really felt that when he was writing this book. And I think he felt it even more when he was writing Lisey's story. And he says so. He says, I was really feeling better. And I think given all, everything he suffered with almost dying, having dozens of complications from the accident, uh, having a, you know, painkiller dependency for a while. He also was on antidepressants for the chronic pain for a while. He just had a very long, bumpy, and treacherous road 
for his own healing process. And we have Lisi's story and we have Duma Key that are at the tail end, the hopeful end, the light at the end of the tunnel. And I really think he was feeling it, I do. So I would say please engage with this novel to really observe Mr. King in a zone of feeling whole again and feeling powerfully creative and really back on top of his throne where he should be. So I'm trying to think if I have anything else. I could just, oh man, I could sing the praises of Duma Key all day and all night. But one thing I would love is we gotta get this mainstream, guys. I hope that you will suggest this novel to your friends. First of all, read it yourself. Like, go out right now and read it. It's the perfect novel to introduce you to summer and warmer temps and longer daylight outside. We can't get to the beach outside in our real lives, so we should go here. Even though Duma Key is a little bit of a doomed beach, it's a great one. And I really want uh, this to be mainstream. Maybe we could try to see it on the road um, toward movie adaptation because this would be the sexiest uh, location to film. It would be such a great movie. I think I want it um, to become a movie more than Joyland. Anytime I say more than Joyland, that, that's some intense love right there because I love in all caps Joyland. But this one is so special and it's just the most amazing example of gothic beach tale I've encountered. So I highly recommend, please read it right now and please write to me at underratedsk at gmail with any of your thoughts or observations that I may have missed. I adore this novel. Reading it again for the second time was a total blast. So to sort of get us back on land here, I'm going to quote my friend Wireman do the day and let the day do you, which is kind of weird, but it works. So coming up next, I said previously that we might do full dark, no stars, but I've decided to throw in a little bit of a surprise. So our next episode will be a surprise and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Basically, I was reading through Duma Key thinking about what's the next book? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go with our next? And I, I knew I wanted Full Darkness Stars. I wanted another novella collection, but then I thought to myself, um, something else crept in last minute. Something else snuck in and sort of got its claws in. So I'm gonna do that one, and it's not necessarily underrated, but um, we're gonna go with it. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a surprise. So I hope to see you guys in episode 15 for my surprise. Um, but until then, please read Duma Key. Take care. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you later. Bye!